Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Misfunctional Disfits, the podcast for collectors, historians, and LARPers of all sorts of militaria. This is for those who have literally run out of room to store shit, but can't stop buying it. I am your host, Charles the Black Sheep 302 Hardy. I am officially a geek whose wife hates Milserp because it's literally everywhere. Alright, so now that we've got that out of the way, let's move on to the next segment, which is sponsorship. There is no sponsorship because I am my own sponsor. Yes, I am lame, I am weak, and there is no one out there to give me any money to make this podcast any better, so I'm doing it literally on my cell phone with a pair of headphones while sitting in my closet, the most acoustically sound room in my house. All right. This being the first episode of what I hope to be many, 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 many more, we're going to start off a little light. We're going to start off with a a couple of things that are not so hard to deal with, but something we can all get behind. And the next show, we're going to hit the ground a little bit harder. But let's talk about the premise of the show. What is the misfunctional disfits? Well, the misfunctional disfits is literally that. It's a bunch of people that are out there doing weird stuff with weird things to make cool stuff. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's an odd amalgamation of who we all are as a cross-section of society. You have everybody from the hardcore collectors to the buyers resellers to the casual collectors to amateur historians to the hardcore historians and everything in between the main focus of this podcast is going to be on collecting the pitfalls the what to look for you know what makes it what it is the history behind it any pop culture references that'll come along to be along with it you know was it used in the movie what what actually vaulted this you know, what was already popular to something even more popular. Oh, things of that nature. And then, when we get to the collecting side of it, it's what you really need to know before you go and buy. So hopefully, if you listen to these shows, you'll know that show number five is literally about the number five jungle carbine, and that's the show you want to listen to before you go and buy one. Because everything you're going to need to know, if not what you're going to need to know is going to be on that show. Oh, just so everyone knows, you know, little little uh, parentheses here, uh, I'm doing everything live. I'm not going to run an editing software. I'm not doing anything. So any mistake that I make, any blurble that I spit out, any repeat, any um, like, whatever that I throw out there, it's all done live. So no stopping, no recording, no editing, at least not yet because I'm broke ass. So again... Crappy earbuds, cell phone, closet. There you go. Alright, so the first show itself is going to be gun shows. We're going to talk to gun shows, and we're going to talk specifically about one gun show in particular. We're going to talk about the Wanamaker Tulsa Arms Show in Oklahoma. What is touted as the world's largest arms show. And... For those who have been, can attest, it is massive. 
It is two stories, 11 and a half acres, 4,500 tables. And according to the stats of one and maker, if you were to stop at every single table and look, you would have exactly 13 seconds per table. And that would take you two days to do. Not too bad. <clears throat> I've been doing the show for 25 years. Uh, I inherited my father's tables. Um, and it's been it's been a good experience. I uh, took my daughter to her first show, my oldest daughter to her first show, this last uh, April. And it was beginning of April of 2022. And she had a blast. She finally saw why I usually come home with a big-ass grin on my face, but I'm so exhausted I can sleep for the whole next day because it's nothing but work. But it's the kind of work that you love to do. So, All right, so let, let, let's, let's talk about the show. I mean, it's, it's a massive show, and it's massively um, visited. It, it, it's massively attended. It's a monster of a show. And, and there's two levels, and the two levels have different vibes of their own. But the people that come to these shows, they are their own vibe. You've got everything from the hardcore far right-winger to the brand-new shooter to the competition guy to the hardcore collector to the hardcore seller to the, to the buyer for the reselling, you know, the deal shopper. You've got it all. And you've got people with attitudes, negative and positive, You've got people that are kind of indifferent to what's going on. You've got husbands dragging wives along that really don't want to be there. You've got kids that don't really want to be there that are being dragged along by their parent. So you've got this massive cross-section. And for me, the best part about these shows is to engage every single one of those people. You know? So I'm, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm like, hey, how you doing? 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 Hey, every single person there is but now we're going to talk about the sellers so I am a seller but not in I'm there to make massive amounts of money because I'm supporting my family off of it selling I'm there to support a habit so for me it's selling to go off and replace it with something else be it a you know, camouflage or uh, gear or a firearm or a pistol or bayonet, whatever. That's what I'm there to do. Sell one by one, sell one by two, sell two by one. It just depends on what's going on. But there are some sellers there that are less than stellar, and there's some that, you know, are pretty much indifferent. They don't care, they won't talk to you, they won't engage you. You know, and then there are those that are like, don't touch without permission. And then there are those that are kind of like, hey, I'm here to sell. Anything you want to know, I will help you the best I can. Then there are the the rare sellers um, that have walked to the floors as best they knew in the time they have, the best they can, to see where everything is at, to go forth and find the deals or where the double barrel shotguns are, the gaming shotguns are, the sporting clay shotguns are, or where the guy with the, the rack that's the no haggling rack that's got all the mill serps on it and then they've kind of gone through them to see what's there. That's me. I mean, I research the show before I actually, you know, when I get there on a Friday and set up, when there's no general public supposed to be allowed inside, I'm walking that show and I'm seeing what's there. 
So come Saturday, when people are walking by and they're talking and people will be saying something like, man, I'm really looking for a 1903 A3. I know where there are a couple are. If you go down four rows and then take a left and go down two rows, it's on row J. It's that little old man with a handlebar mustache and a, and a fedora. He's got a bunch of them on there, um, you know, running about $1,500 a piece. They're in really good shape, though. Oh, man, that's great. What did I just do? You know, did I did I screw myself out of a sale? Well, no, because I don't have any 1903 A3s to sell. I'm not screwing myself anybody. I'm perpetuating the ownership of a 1903 to somebody else so they can enjoy it. I'm I'm helping somebody who wants something out. I'm not, I'm not doing anything other than making the collecting community just a tad bit stronger. I'm, I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm an ambassador to a degree. And that bleeds into the next thing of being a buyer. You know, it's the same thing. If you go off and, you want, and you're looking for something, it helps when people can tell you in the kind of the direction you're going because this show can be massive and intimidating if you don't know what you're doing. You can walk past what you're looking for six or seven times before you realize you've walked past it. And you may never even see it. So having somebody that's seen it go, dude, it's right there. It's just right around the corner to the left. He's got him. I know. I was just there. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate that. It's great. And it's always great to have a second set of eyes with you if you're a, if you're, if you're a buyer. It's always great to have a second set of eyes. Um, I have some really good friends that go with me to these shows, and when we get out there, it's great to have a set of eyes. One looks right, one looks left. And you guys can pick up so much more. And there's always like a little gem hidden in the middle of a you know, pile of junk. I mean, some of my best scores have come from having a second set of eyes with me. Like, oh my God, look at this. Oh, cool. How much? Blah, blah. Okay, haggle, haggle, haggle. Boom, get it for half of what he was asking. And you've walked away with one of the greatest pieces in your collection. Um it is it is amazing but the problem that we're coming across now with shows is even with the second set of eyes even with all the information you can have on hand and even with doing the most amount of research you can possibly do and we'll, we're going to circle oh my goodness i didn't just say that we're going to come back to talking about research here in a second <laughs> deals deals are not what they used to be because the market doesn't bear deals like it used to the days of the $90 Mosins and the $100 SKSs are dead. We as collectors and mill cert guys need to get over that. Get over ourselves. Quit saying, shh, I'm not paying not $400 for a Mosin. That's just crap. I remember when they were blah. We've got to get over that. Because the newer collector generation that's behind, oh, let's just say the Gen X collection or the Gen X collectors, the, the, the Gen Zers that are in, and Millennials that are behind the Gen Xers, that, they don't know the $90 Mosin collection and, or the $79.99 Mosins out of the Shotgun News or the $100 SKSs out of Shotgun News or the Mosin they got pistols for you know $65 out of Shotgun News. They, they don't remember those days. So for us to keep perpetuating that statement of, oh, I remember when they... It only bleeds down on them, and then they use it, and it doesn't help anyone. So we probably need to just say, 
those days are over, we need to move on. Well, it is a good thing that we that we realize that the times have changed, the market's changed, everything's changed. There are no more massive shipments coming in anymore. There are no more massive milsert drops out there. A lot of countries are destroying their old stuff as opposed to even throwing it back out for milsert use in the first place these days. So we have to understand that. And deals may be $100 of what the, off of what the market bears. So your number four, number four Mark One Enfield that you know, two years ago would have been 350 bucks is now 600. And I'm not talking about the B grades you can get from RTI or some of these other places. I'm talking about a decent, good shape, really well, you know, maintained number four Mark One. You know, there's six, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars. It's just really kind of all upon the seller and the provenance that the rifle has. But in the end, if you're comfortable and it's what you want, and you're not looking to turn around and make a grand off of it in the same show, or you're not trying to flip it, then you're okay buying it. I mean, you're not going to be screwing yourself, but you're not getting the best deal out there. You're going to be kind of limiting yourself on what you can do with the rest of your money if you don't have a lot to play with in the first place. Those are the things that we as collectors need to start recognizing. But as sellers it kind of falls upon us to help set market value as well. I mean, there are still $450 number four Mark ones. And I keep referring to the, 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 the Lee Enfield rifles because yeah, it's just the most recent acquisitions that I picked up. You can still get them for 450 bucks, but you can't get them at shows for 450 bucks. You can order them for 450 bucks and pay $25 in shipping and another $25 in a transfer fee and pay an extra $50 for, you know, hand select and pay another $50 for this brand or another 50 for a U.S. stamping. By the time you're done paying for all these little extra knick-knack doodads, the add-ons that these, you're not, you're out of a $450 range rifle. It's, it's done. You know, you're looking at seven, seven fifty now. You go to a show and you can find them for seven, seven hundred and fifty. So it's, almost the exact same thing these days. Yeah, I can find it cheaper online. Then buy me, by all means, go and buy it cheaper online. You're not hurting my feelings. Actually, I'm happy for you. If you can find this cheaper online, please go buy it. That's, that's totally cool with me, and most of us feel the same way. If you can find it cheaper online, buy it. But the thing about a show that a lot of people, me included, have trouble swallowing so when you look at that price tag, you're like, oh my God, that's too many Christmas. Two years ago, that was not that price. Well, of course it wasn't two years ago. But then again, two years ago, everything was different. I mean, 30 seconds ago, things were different. Things are going to be different in a minute. So it's this dynamic of, of constant change. And right now, worldwide, the change is everything costs more. Everything costs more. So research is a damn good way to ensure that you know what you're getting. If you know what you're after, 
you know, I really want X rifle or X pistol or X bayonet or X sword or whatever, and you go to one of these shows, it is a damn good idea to have your Google on your phone ready to go, have the websites that you've been researching or that you know have the information that you need already queued up, or have maybe a little notebook with, you know, scribbles in there and tank stamps drawn in or whatever you want. Or, in some cases, have a friend on speed dial who knows a heck of a lot more about it than you do that can rattle stuff off the top of their head. It's not a bad idea. Uh, I personally got myself into a pickle at this last show. Uh, I bought a rifle that, you know, I've, I've known about them for years, ever since I got into this. Um, but I've never owned one. I've never owned any of them before. And I bought it. And I bought the ammo for it, which was ungodly expensive. And I said, hey, cool, right on. Um, I got it. And then I decided, well, let's see if I can turn around and sell it. I put it on the table. And and it was one of those, am I overcharging? And then I had people come saying, you know, you're asking too much. And I was like, well, really? And I wasn't, you know, and it was purely ignorance on my side. I didn't know. Come to find out, after having somebody help me with my research, I really wasn't too far off of what I was asking from what the price of the, the, the rifle really was. But that had to include the ammunition, which is like $5 a round almost. It's stupid for this ammunition. So I did eventually sell it, and it sold for right at what I paid for it with the ammunition. So I didn't feel too bad. Plus it went to a guy who was, I, I, I was super comfortable selling it to him because of what he was doing with it. You know, he had one rifle, one bolt action rifle from, from all six main aggressive states in, or address, aggressive countries in World War II and they were gonna have a company shoot off. So I, was, I wasn't too unhappy with that. Um, you know, Things like that, you know, having your information laid out, being ready, being prepared, that's awesome. Having friends that you can call, that's awesome. Having, you know, educated yourself ahead of time to where you may not even need your phone or your, your, your notepad, that's even better. But the one thing that we all really need to focus on as a, as a community of collectors and, and surplus people are the kids. That generation that's just, you know, 10, 12, 13 years old in that range, that is a generation we need to focus on and foster. I mean, because this, this is a generation that's stuck uh, in, in computer games, in video games, in, you know, vir, you know virtual reality games. Uh, and yeah, I mean, so games like Battlefield and, you know, what I, I don't really know the games too too well because I don't play them but you know the video games that require you to use a firearm and then they modify them all out it, it does bring the idea back to oh I really want one of those in real life but it's up to us to yeah but this is what it really is and then the, here's the history behind it and then this is what makes it special versus its contemporaries of the time you know we have to be patient with them we have to foster them we have to Make sure that we're giving them a proper education because they're going to be taking over for us when we can no longer do this.
when we're old and decrepit and we can't even get up to go take a pee anymore, they're going to be the ones our age doing what we're doing now. They're going to be the ones carrying this along. We need them to be passionate about it. We need them to love it just as much as we do, if not more. Especially in today's political climate, they need to love it. They have to love it because if they don't, who's going to stand up for it when, they, when, when, when something changes and somebody points a finger in that direction and says, that needs to go away. So there we go. That's, that's the first show as it stands. I know, not the greatest, but hey, this is the first. The next one will be better. And the next one we hit the ground and we're going to start doing some hardcore focusing. But I'm going to end this with something. I'm going to do a, uh, at the end of each show, we're going to, I'm going to pick a, a Medal of Honor recipient. We're going to go over it, date of birth, all that, and I'm going to read you the citation. And then I encourage you to go and, and look all that up on your own after I read it. Okay? So, today we're going to read about Deming Bronson from World War I. He was born in July of 1894 in Rylander, Wisconsin. And he died in May of 1957 in Roseburg, Oregon. He is also buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Joined the U.S. Army in 1916, served through 1919. He was a first lieutenant with the 364th Infantry Regiment of the 91st Division. Now, his citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty in action with the enemy, on the morning of 26 September, during the advance of the 364th Infantry, First Lieutenant Bronson was struck by an exploding hand grenade. Receiving deep cuts on his face and the back of his head, he nevertheless participated in the action which resulted in the capture of an enemy dugout from which a great number of prisoners were taken. This was affected with great difficulty under extremely hazardous conditions because it was necessary to advance without the advantage of cover and from an exposed position. Throw hand grenades and phosphorus bombs to compel the enemy to surrender. On the afternoon of the same day, he was painfully wounded in the left arm by an enemy rifle bullet. And after receiving first aid treatment, he was directed to the rear. Disregarding these instructions, Lieutenant Bronson remained on duty with his company through the night, although suffering severe pain and shock. On the morning of 27 September, his regiment resumed its attack, the object being the village of Ecclesafonte. I think that's how you pronounce it. Company H, to which Lieutenant Bronson was assigned, was left in support of the attacking line, Company E being in the line. He gallantly joined Company E in spite of his wounds and engaged with it in the capture of the village. After the capture, he remained with Company E and participated with it in the capture of an enemy machine gun, where he himself killed the enemy machine gunner. Shortly after his encounter with the company was compelled, shortly after the encounter, the company was compelled to retire due to heavy enemy artillery barrage. During this retirement, First Lieutenant Bronson, who was the last man to leave the advanced position, was again wounded in both arms by an enemy high explosive shell. He was then assisted to cover by another officer who applied first aid. Although bleeding profusely and faint from the loss of blood, First Lieutenant Bronson remained with the survivors of the company throughout the night of the second day. 
refusing to go to the rear for treatment. His conspicuous gallantry in the, spite of self in the spirit of self-sacrifice were a source of great inspiration for the members of the entire command. Let's put this into context. Dude gets blown up, shot twice, and blown up again. And he never leaves the front lines. It's pretty badass. Okay, so that's it, boys and girls. That's show one. Let's see how we do. We'll move on to show two. As always, take care of yourselves. Be kind to others. And if you can't be careful, just don't get caught. <laughs>